welcome to mini episode 127 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And I have two spooky stories for you today. And the last story comes from June the 1st, 2021. And story number one comes from Deanne. It was 1992 and I was four years old. And my family moved into a house that was pretty new. It had only been occupied by the builder for a short period of time before he decided to sell it. And as far as we knew, the land prior was designated as farmland, as was most of the town, so it was never occupied in any other capacity. Growing up, I insisted on sleeping with my door all the way open, and usually with something placed in front of it so I couldn't accidentally close it somehow. We also always kept the hall light on. I would be woken up frequently by heavy adult footsteps coming up the stairs and stopping at my door, And of course I would look and there would be nothing there. It happened so much that I just got used to it, and as long as the whole light was on I felt safe. I mentioned it a few times to my parents but they just shrugged it off so I eventually stopped bringing it up. I do believe my dad heard it though, as we are both the light sleepers of the family. I remember being woken up to him calling my name from his room and asking why I was up walking around. He never admitted it, but I think he was hearing the same footsteps I was hearing by my door. My brother and I had shared a Jack and Jill style bathroom connecting our two bedrooms, a point of many childhood fights. We would frequently lock each other out of the bathroom to try and get some privacy and feign forgetfulness. On several occasions, I was woken up to the sound of the sink on or cups scraping across the countertop. When I would yell at my brother for waking me up, I would get no response. After going in to investigate, I would see that the sink was dry, there was a cup knocked over, and his door was still locked, so there was no way for him to have gotten in unless he had come through my room, in which case I would have seen him leave. Another time, I had been away at camp and come home to find my blanket gone from my bed, and small, child-sized, dirty shoe prints walking from the bottom of my bed onto my pillow. They were too small to be my brother's shoes, which confused and scared me. When I asked my mom what was going on, she stated that she had taken my blanket for washing. But when I mentioned the shoe prints, she shrugged it off and just grabbed the sheets to wash too. When I angrily probed further about who she possibly let into my room, sometimes she would babysit my neighbour's young son, she just yelled, I don't know. I dropped it after that and to this day she still says that she doesn't remember that incident. At the start of my senior year in high school, my father passed away. I pretty much went through that entire year on autopilot from shock and really don't have many memories. This began my lucid dreaming. I've had many dreams with my father and I chatting casually in bright, fuzzy, warm rooms when I realize this can't actually be happening and when I state that he is dead so this can't be real, He always responds, but does it matter? I still have them today and occasionally can lucid dream even without his presence as a trigger. The next year I moved out and went to college a couple of hours away. One visit home, my mom and my brother seemed anxious to talk to me about my experiences in the house. This shocked me as they had both stated before that they were sceptics but I think once you lose a loved one, you're more willing to believe or even hope for some connection to death. They said they had been hearing footsteps come up the stairs and stop at my door 
and thought maybe it was my dad's spirit coming to my room to see why I wasn't there. When I said I had heard that all growing up, so it couldn't be my dad, they looked petrified. Then they said they had also been hearing noises in the loft office. Papers shuffling, the printer clicking around, the office chair creaking, etc. I told them I hadn't heard that before. My mom admitted it was really scaring her and one night she yelled out, Don, if that is you, you're freaking me out. She said the office noises stopped after that, but the weirdest part was that she had been struggling to find some important financial documents my dad had kept track of and a few days later, it seemingly miraculously appeared on top of a stack of papers. We do like to believe that was my dad trying to help her. In the years that passed before my mom sold the house, they continued to hear the footsteps coming up the stairs and stop by my empty room. As far as I know, the couple that bought it are still living there, and I do wonder if they too have had any experiences. I would definitely be wondering that too. I'd be so tempted to go back and ask them and say, hey, has anything weird happened in the house? But that's a really difficult thing to approach, isn't it? It's a really difficult conversation to have because not everybody reacts to asking people about their experiences of the supernatural very positively. Some people see it as a joke. Some people respond quite negatively to it. So it all depends on who it is that you're talking to and how well you know that person. It does sound like it's very likely that your dad did experience those things too when he was alive and when you were living in the house and experiencing the footsteps but I guess there's that very adult thing of not wanting to admit something because then you have to face up to the fact that it's actually happening so it's easier to just say no 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 no, I didn't hear that or no that didn't happen and as for the footsteps on your bed or the footprints on your bed rather I would not be impressed with that one I hate things being unnecessarily messed or dirtied in any way, shape or form. So I would find that very difficult. I'd find it very difficult to be patient with a ghost who put footprints all over my duvet cover or my bed sheets. And story number two comes from Jennifer. I am a woman of an established age who did not marry until the young age of 46, shockingly for the first time. I will back up now and start with my mother who died of suicide at the age of 52. I was 26 years old at the time and her sister had died about 10 years previously of the same thing. Our grandmother, their mother, had reportedly had electric shock therapy in the 1950s for severe depression. My other aunt and uncle from that side had their own tragic issues but not related to depression and suicide. Notably, in my grandmother's story, who I'm going to call Helvi to honour her original Finnish birth name, was that she was adopted out to an American family by her Finnish parents in around the 1920s. Then she was renamed Jane, met my handsome Scottish grandfather in Chicago and shockingly became pregnant before marriage. They moved out to Seattle and she never spoke of her childhood that I can remember, other than to say that she was Finnish, and she did teach us to count 20 in Finnish. We knew her birth name from a birth certificate, but were strictly told to call her Grandma Jane. Thing is, Helvi appeared non-Caucasian. For most of my childhood, people would ask what part of Asia she came from. When we would ask her if maybe she had an Asian parent or a grandparent, she would just change the subject. 
I did not really know what the Sami culture was until much later after both she and my mother and my aunt had passed away. For those who don't know either, it's one of the main indigenous groups of the Arctic Circle and can include Nordic people, Scandinavians, Asians and Russian Siberian born people. So once I started down a genealogy rabbit hole, I found out what happened to my most likely Sami grandmother, Helvi's mother, who had been given an Americanized name of Amanda. I'm still working on the details, but so far as we know, Amanda and her husband made it to the US around 1910 with possibly up to nine children in tow from Finland. My great-grandfather reportedly was physically and emotionally abusive, and Amanda blacked out one day while bathing my grandmother's infant baby brother and the baby died. After that, Amanda was put into a hospital in Wisconsin called Douglas County Asylum for the Chronically Insane. I still have some work to do on their stories and the records from there about Amanda, but that seems to make sense as to why Helvi would not talk about her youth or her birth family. Fast forward to my 26-year-old self in medical school, reeling with the suicide of my mother and trying to help with my younger siblings. And then came about 18 years of dating unattached men, amongst other things, and now I am, well was, 44. And I'm finally getting to the ghost story part. Oddly, we had lived in the very house I had just purchased at the age of 44 for exactly one year when I was 10 years old. That was the year my mother, with three young daughters, moved into the house three hours away from my father to start her life over. It's a terribly run-down home built as a small apple orchard picker's cabin in 1938 and had no right to still be standing. It was run down. It had four and a half foot ceilings on one side of the kitchen. It was a rat motel. But the Seattle area housing market was ridiculously overpriced and it literally fell into my lap as the woman who had recently owned it put up a sign for half the cost. I had been casually looking around the area and my older sister spotted it. We all assumed it was a joke, but to make a long story short, by the end of the day I owned a house. It was barely livable for the first few months, and honestly five years later was still barely livable. But here I was, as a homeowner, 44, nursing a recent breakup and living in the very same crappy home my mother had tried to leave my father in. Nine months after we had moved into the house in 1983, my baby brother was born so we moved out of the crappy little house and back to the town with my father. That is the house that my mother eventually passed away in, but the crappy little house reminded me of her as I had vivid memories of living in it with her and my sisters as a 10-year-old. When I purchased the house at the age of 44, I had to take in two lodgers that year to make ends meet with my new mortgage. One was a single mom with an 18-month-old son. I will call him the Screamer, as that was literally his entire reason for existing for the 10-12 to months that he lived in my house. The Screamer did have his nice moments, and I have been told he was really only a prolific Screamer in my house, so it could have been that but he literally wailed non-stop most nights, and often during the days. His mother is also a physician like me, and a skeptic, so we did not notice the patterns of the screaming occurring more in the kitchen, specifically at the kitchen table, until months in. 
and after other odd things started to happen. They had lived here several months and his mother had to go out of town so my other roommate and I had the screamer for the weekend. We assumed that he might calm down without his mother here and we were wrong. I was surprised when I heard the tray from his high chair crash onto the floor from the other room. My crabby house is very small, so I was close by when I heard it. I walked into the kitchen to see him in his high chair, strapped in of course, I'm not that irresponsible, but his tray was about three or four feet away on the floor. He was loudly screaming as normal, but this time shaking his fists and staring off into the centre of the kitchen. I paused and then scolded him for throwing his tray. He babble screamed something a 22 month old would say and we forgot about it for a couple of days. Two days later he and I were in the kitchen together and he was on the floor calmly playing when he suddenly started in on his wailing. I was about to offer him some food or some Valium, I'm kidding about one of those of course. When that same damn high chair tray, this time, flew from the edge of our dish drying rack straight out about two feet and crashed onto the floor. I was a bit stunned and confused, but I still had the screamer to deal with. I think I chalked it up to a tilting crappy house. I did tell my other roommate that night who thought I was exaggerating. It was in the same general area of the kitchen that the tray flew two days prior. Next was the microwave in the kitchen. It lost all its numbers and would blink in a way that spelt words. But the one we all saw often was out. It was nearly new and very nice otherwise, so we just ignored it. Two or three times we had cell phones that were sitting on the kitchen table that would just play music randomly, even though no one was nearby to turn the music on or talk to Siri. But the most pivotal point to me was a weekend a month or so later when the other roommate was out of town for the weekend. The mom roommate and screamer and I were home though. I woke up very late Saturday night to use the bathroom and out of the corner of my sleepy eyes I saw a female walking away from me towards her bedroom. In my small crappy house this is all very near the kitchen area too. It was very dark and it was the back of her so I assumed my roommate had returned home early and did not say anything to me. She just walked into the room and that was that. The next morning, Mom, Rumi, the screamer and myself were eating a late breakfast when my other roommate walked into the house, but she had her travel bag with her. I asked her if she had left her bag in the car overnight, because it's not safe to do that in the city, and she looked at me puzzled and said she was just arriving back from her trip. And no, she had not been walking down the hallway the night before. I know the logical thought is that it was Mom Rumi that I saw at night, but she had a bathroom accessible from her bedroom, was over six feet tall, and both the hallway woman and the other Rumi are much shorter, and she denied getting up in the middle of the night. Now I was starting to think that someone or something was in our home, but I was still the skeptic though. You may at this point in the story be asking, why in the fuck did she start with her tragic grandmother-mother backstory? And the husband? Well, here it is. Mom Rumi had recently spotted an attractive house painter who was high up on a ladder painting the neighbour's house in the evenings. I had just gone through another terrible breakup as mentioned, so I told Mom Rumi I was not interested in him at all. But she was very much looking 
and he indeed was good looking. Mom Rumi was trying to think up ways to ask him out. But I have the first awkward conversation with Hot Painter when the other neighbour told him I was a parking Nazi and not to park in my driveway. I brought him a glass of water and assured him that he could put whatever he needed into our parking spot. I will spare you the drawn out parts where Mom Rumi failed several times to talk to him like an adult and not a screaming toddler, but he and I had several nice over the fence chats. And then poof, he was gone. The major kitchen events woman in the hall I listed above happened during the same few weeks we met a hot painter and he was painting the house next door as well. So being a good roomie and not at all interested in the hot painter, I sleuthed his last name from a neighbour and found his Facebook. Mom Rumi was too hesitant to message him, so a few gin martinis in one night I did, and he promptly asked me out. I refused at first, citing my lack of judgement in good men, and I think also the fact that he already had two teenagers despite being younger than me, but we had now been linked on Facebook Messenger. Several days later, my cell phone was on the kitchen table charging, and I had not touched it in a few hours, when I hear a vaguely familiar man's voice saying, Hello, Jenny? Hello, are you there? I walk over to see the hot painter on FaceTime, through Messenger. I'm not even sure if it's called that, as I am not high-tech, and I've never actually used FaceTime. I laughed and told him he must have called me by mistake, when he told me that I had called him. And it seemed that way. And he's younger and understands complicated contraptions like FaceTime. My phone had indeed dialed him up while I was nowhere near it. He then asked me out again, and I blamed the phone this time and said yes. Although the gin is probably to blame too. Now we are officially dating, and it's a month or so later. Mom Rumi is barely talking to me, but Screaming Toddler has calmed down oddly enough. Hot Painter had come over with his 12-year-old and we had baked pies. It was autumn and this is what Americans do in the fall. They were standing in the kitchen and he was facing me, getting ready to leave. His daughter was several feet behind him, also facing me, when he flinched and abruptly turned around and told his daughter to stop poking him. The thing is, she wasn't poking him. I was facing both of them. To this day, he swears that it was a hard nudge on the shoulder that almost shook him. I guess that was the climax, pun intended about the hot painter, but the rest of the story is we fell in love fast, he and his teens moved in, my roomies and screaming toddler moved out and we were engaged a year later and then married nearly two years exactly to the day that we met over that glass of water. We had our wedding reception in the backyard with a place marker for that. Other than a couple of odd times with glasses breaking, nothing happened after he and I officially started dating. I am now looping this back to my mother and grandmother and great-grandmother. All three of them had tragedy in their lives and two of them had less than ideal marriages. I've thought of this story quite a bit over the last five years, and now fully believe it was either a combination of Amanda, my great-grandmother, Helvi, Grandma Jane, and Gail, my mom, that pushed through some serious female energy to help my husband and I meet. I think the screamer did not like them because they did not want his mother to date the hot painter. That's my working theory anyway because despite the fact that he moved in with two teens and two cats, he is the love and joy of my late-to-marry life. Some of my other relationships, for various reasons I will not list on here, 
could have put me in situations that they had been in with their marriages. And now that I learn more about Amanda and the Sami culture, I would not be surprised if some paganism was not running through my maternal line. We found out after my mother's death that she had recently become interested in voodoo magic and my sister has a book of hers. I hope that this happy ending story was a good one. The next story occurred exactly one year before the hot painter husband and screaming toddler story above. I was newly living in a house that was a duplex. I had recently broken up with a terrible person and was trying to figure out my life. I was a bit sad and confused. I missed having a mother, even though it had been years since she had passed. One evening, doing nothing other than watching TV, a metal toy truck just started to move for no obvious push and rolled across my window ledge and a couple of feet more into the air and crashed. The truck was in the belongings of my mother after she passed, and I think it was hers as a child, but I will never be able to confirm that. I have a friend who is a psychologist by day and a ghost hunter by night, and when I told her about it a few days later, she said we should do a seance in my new duplex for fun to see if any energy was there. It was built in the 1950s, so a bit of older energy. I was single, bored, and said, why not? Also, I had always secretly hoped that my mother would try and make contact with me. It was a late fall, October weekend, and the ghost hunter, as well as another female friend, were headed over for wine and Ouija board. Like you do in your 40s when toy trucks fly across your room. There was a second duplex right next to mine, and I had yet to meet those neighbours. As I walked up to my door, a neighbour walked out of hers, and I spontaneously told her I was having a couple of female friends over for wine and maybe a seance, and did she have plans? Oddly, she said she'd love to join us. She told me she was new to the area too. She seemed nice, maybe 10 years older than us and just nice. Two hours later, all three women, myself, some bad white wine and a Ouija board, were ready to go into my duplex. We had the metal truck nearby for reference. I did not even know the last name of my neighbour who had joined us. The ghost hunter was a pro at Ouija and basically told us where to put our hands and she would do the talking. She asked questions about who the toy truck belonged to and why it had moved. She asked about my mother and my grandfather as I thought maybe it could have been his toy and literally nothing happened. We were all getting a bit bored and drunk so we decided to try one more time. This time the board very quickly spelled out the word June. It was fast. I sort of giggled. No one else thought much either. Then it spelled out the word May. And then the ghost hunter said, Your mother is here and she wants you to know that none of this is your fault and she is just fine. But she was not looking at me. She was looking at my new neighbour who now was sitting stunned and wide-eyed. The next few seconds felt so much longer and then she started talking. She told us she'd been driving a car in a rainstorm with her mother a couple of years before and they crashed. Her mother did not make it. Her mother's name was May and the crash happened in the month of June. We clearly were speechless. The ghost hunter now switched roles into psychologist to soothe my neighbour and make sure she could handle this information. We all decided it was enough for us and stopped the activity. A few weeks later, I saw the neighbour and she told me she was a devout Catholic who knew she should not go to a seance that night that I asked her, 
so she wasn't sure why she did it. But she was very glad she did and felt so much more at peace about her mother's passing. If you've been listening for a while, you know I love the ghost of a strong woman. I love the ghost of a strong, interfering matriarch who just has to, even in the afterlife, meddle in the lives of their loved ones. I feel like if I was a ghost, it's the type of ghost that I would be. And just obviously to say, I mean, it goes without saying, like, Jennifer, you've obviously been through a whole world of trauma and I'm really sorry that you had to go through all that. And I'm really sorry that you're maternal family had to go through all that too because there's so much tragedy and loss within this story but it is nice to think that maybe just maybe they nudged you in the direction of the hot painter and that was why you and the hot painter ended up together I loved the second story about the Ouija board I just love a Ouija board story when you feel like there is no possible way that this person could have made this connection and known this information. If your friend had said your mother, like Jennifer's mother was coming through and that she wanted to say, you know, that she was happy and she was fine, you would feel like maybe her friend was trying to give her some sense of closure. But the fact that nobody knew this woman, the neighbour, nobody knew her. They uh, didn't even know her surname, so she was only a new neighbour. How amazing that she was able to get closure from that Ouija board session. I mean, I know I know we do PSAs about Ouija boards and how terrible they are. But this is this is a nice, happy ending with a Ouija board and a happy ending with the hot painter. We love it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you to Deanne and Jennifer for sending in your stories. Remember, the last story came from June the 1st, 2021. If you would like to know anything about Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast, you could do so by checking out the website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next time.